Welcome to River of Life, and thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy this teaching, we want to encourage you to share it with a family member or friend. Also, visit River of Life this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. For service times and directions, visit rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, good evening, everybody. If you want to find your place, we will go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, tonight, if you got your Bibles, as always, I would encourage you to open them and follow along, just in case I slip something in that really shouldn't be there. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 20, and uh, the title of our lesson is What It Means to Be God. You know, it's something we don't normally talk about. Um, we talk a lot about God, but it tends to be in relation to us, right? What, what God thinks about us, what we think about God, but we, we, very, we don't very seldom just talk about what does it mean to be God. And tonight, we're going to be forced to, uh, to, to think about that. Uh, I want to begin with a quick review. We're going to be starting in verse 14, but I want to start with a quick review of, of what brought us here. And I'll make this very quick. Um, we all know, if, you, if you've been here with us the past few weeks, in verses 1 through 5, uh, Paul lays out uh, an issue or a problem. And that is that the, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are God's chosen people. And not only are they chosen, but they have been given unparalleled privileges that, that nobody else gets. And yet, despite all of that, they are lost. And the reason they're lost is because they have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this causes a potential crisis for Paul and, and potentially for us as well. Because it seems possible that God's word has failed. It seems possible that he has not kept his promises to Israel. And by the way, that's a big deal because if he didn't keep his promises to Israel, then how would we ever know that he's going to keep them for us? And so this is what, when, when, when Romans 9 starts out, this is the issue that Paul is dealing with. Has God's word failed? Now, he answers that in verse 6. He says this, No, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So if you'll remember, Paul gave us two examples of brothers. And, and, and do, these two sets of brothers are both physical Jews. They are both sons of, and, and grandsons of Abraham. Yet Paul says uh, Isaac was chosen and Ishmael was not. Jacob was chosen and Esau was not. So this is Paul's explanation of why God's word hadn't failed. What he says is God has always been choosing the children of God. God has always been choosing a remnant who are the children of promise. And to that remnant, God always keeps his, his word. So Paul, as we get to verse 13, he has, he has brought out this concept that God is choosing the children of promise. Okay. Now, by the way, he's already answered the issue. That, that's, he's taken care of it. He's dealt with the problem. God's word has not failed. But... He's kind of opened the can of worms. And now he's got to talk about the choosing of God. Because here's the problem. Whenever 
Paul teaches this, whenever he, he writes it in a letter or he teaches it on a market in the marketplace or in a synagogue or anywhere at all, it always elicits the same reaction. When you say that God chooses one person and doesn't choose another, everybody has the same reaction. That's not fair. That's just not fair. Now, before we move on, I want to talk about that for just a second. What do we mean when we say that that's not fair? Do you mean that God should treat everybody the same? That God should give everybody the same opportunities? That God should give everybody the same privileges, if you will? Is that what we mean when we say it's not fair? Well, let me just put that to rest. Does anybody think life is fair? Anybody? Just look around you. Is it fair that on February the 8th, 1963, I was born in TMH and I was brought home by a Christian couple that raised me in the Christian faith? While at the same moment, maybe even the same second, a man is born in India to a Hindu family. Another man is born in Iran to a, uh, a Muslim family. Another man maybe is born in the same hospital and taken home by atheist parents. Is that fair? Is that fair? Is it fair that one person is born into a family in a country where they never have to even wonder where their next meal is coming from? They've always got plenty. Another person is born into abject poverty and they have no idea where their next meal is coming from. Is that fair? Is it fair that God chose Israel and gave them all these privileges and he didn't give them to the other countries, the other people groups? Is that fair? No, it's not fair. But you go into the scripture and find me one place where it says that God has to be fair. You won't find it. There's no scripture where God promises to be fair or, or holds himself accountable to being fair. That's not scriptural at all. See, it turns out fairness isn't the issue. There is an issue that needs to be asked and answered. There's a question that needs to be addressed. It's not, is God fair? The question is, God right? Is God right in doing what he does by choosing one person and not another? This is the question that Paul addresses in, in Romans 9, 14. Paul says this, what do we say then? All that stuff we've been covering for the last two or three weeks, verses 1, 13, 1 through 13. What do we say to all of that stuff? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is, is God wrong in doing what he's doing? That's, that's the question that he's asking. Now, he says, certainly not. And he, in just a moment, he's going he's gonna to tell you why. But before we move on, I want to talk about something. That word, we say all the time, God is righteous, don't we? What do we mean by that? When we say that God is righteous... One of the things we mean by that is we're saying that he always does what is right. Everybody with me? That makes That's easy. He's righteous. He always does what is right. But here's the important part. <clears throat> Who decides what is right? You ever thought about that? We say God is always, is, he always does what is right. That's what it means to be righteous. But who decides what's right? You see... When we talk about a man or a woman being righteous, maybe I, I talk about Paul, and I'd say Paul's a righteous man. What I mean by that is I'm, I'm comparing him to a standard of right and wrong. 
And, and if I compare him to a standard, he's not perfect, but for the most part, he, he's right. He's walking. And, and of course, our standard as, as Christians is the word of God. And so as much as Paul can walk according to the word of God and obey the word of God and walk in God's ways, we say he is a righteous man because we're comparing him to a standard. Everybody with me? Now, here's the problem, though, folks. God is not subject to anything outside of himself. That's what it means to be God. A.W. Tozer says this better than I could ever say it. So let me just read what he says. It is sometimes said that righteousness requires God to do something, referring to some act that we know he will perform. This is an error of thinking as well as of speaking, for it postulates a principle of righteousness outside of God, which compels him to act in a certain way. Of course, there is no such principle, because if there were, it would be superior to God. For only a superior power can compel obedience. And let me stop right there. If there's something outside of God that he has to submit to, then he's not God. He might be a great being. He might be a, a principality or a power. Think about Lucifer. Think about Michael the archangel. They are great beings, right? They are, uh, they're, they're superior intelligence and they've got, can do uh, uh, probably some incredible things, but they're not gods. You see, God is above them. They are submissive. They are under his dominion. But God, God is at the top of the food chain. There is nobody above him. There's nothing inside, there's nothing outside of him that compels him in any way, shape, or form. Because if it did, then he wouldn't be God. He continues, the truth is there is not and can never be anything outside the nature of God which can move him in the least degree. Righteousness, when used of God, is a name we give to the way God is, nothing more. And when God acts righteously, he's not doing so to conform to some independent standard, but simply acting like himself in a given situation. So what he means is this. God is not constrained by any standard of right and wrong. God is right. You get that? God doesn't, we, he doesn't sit over here and say, well, I've got to obey the law. No, God is the law. He is right. The law comes from him. He's not, he's not beholding to any type of standard. Nothing outside makes him do anything. That's what it means to be God. One more quick thing about this. When we say that God is righteous, not only are we saying that he always does what is right, we're also saying that he always acts without partiality or prejudice. Let me tell you, God hates partiality and God hates prejudice. He, 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 I think it's James that tells us if a rich man comes in, you don't treat him any different than you do the poor man. God hates that. So God cannot act without partiality or prejudice. Now let me go back to Romans 9, 10 through 12. And let's read that again. It says, not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Isaac, though they were not yet born, they had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Listen, that is the epitome of no partiality and no prejudice. God chose Jacob over Esau, not because of the color of his hair, not because of the color of his skin, not because of his XY chromosomes. 
He, he didn't choose him because he, one day he might be a good person. He didn't do any of those things. They weren't born. They hadn't done anything good or bad. God chose because of his own purposes and his own will. That is the epitome of no partiality and no prejudice. It had nothing to do with them. Now, let's move on. We come to verse 14. Paul says, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Now, here's his argument. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, he is quoting from Exodus 33. If you go back to Exodus 33 and you read that chapter, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai. He's got the Ten Commandments. He comes down the mountain and the people are worshiping a golden calf. Y'all remember the story, right? And he throws the Ten Commandments down and he breaks them. And it's just chaos. And, and God says, look, you take them to the promised land. I'm not going with them. This, this is a stubborn, uh, stiff-necked people. You, you deal with it. And so Moses and God in the tent of meeting are having these conversations. And, and in one of these conversations, Moses said to God this statement. He says, please show me your glory. Now, this is an amazing story. And I would encourage you to go back and read this in Exodus 33. Show me your glory. Now, what does Paul mean by that? This is what I think he means. If you came to me and you said, Derek... Tell me who you really are. And I might say, well, I'm a man. I'm white. I'm southern. I, uh, I'm married. I'm a father. That, that fits the definition of millions of other people, doesn't it? That's not who I am. Tell me who you really are. Tell, tell me what you're passionate about. And I'd start to tell you about my relationship with Jesus. I'd tell you how much I love the Word of God. I'd start, and then you'd know who I really am. Are you with me? See, I think that's what he's saying to God. Show me who you really are. Show me what makes you God. Show me, show me, show me. I want to see something. Tell me. And this is God's answer in verse 19. He says, okay, Moses, I'm going to do three things. Number one, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. Number two. I will, I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And then he says this, which just seems so out of place when you read it. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, the first one, he says, I'll make all my goodness. This is some, in some way, this is a physical showing. Now, I don't, I'm not even going to pretend I understand this. If you go back and read the story, it said Moses, he hid Moses in a cleft of a rock. And as he walked by, he said, I'm going to put my hand over your face so you can't see me. And as I go by, I'll remove my hand so you can see the back of me. But you can't see my face. Now, this is odd because the Bible says God is a spirit. So, so what he's seeing here, I don't know. But it's obviously something physical because God covered his eyes. So there's something about the, the, the physicalness of God that, that Moses could see. The second one is descriptive. I will proclaim my name to you, the Lord or Yahweh. This is a great study. If you ever go in, into the Old Testament, especially and study names, it's a really interesting study. You see, naming in the Old Testament represented authority and dominion. If you named something, 
you had authority over that. For example, go back to the book of Genesis. God tells Adam, go out into the world and subdue it, right? Oh yeah, by the way, go name the animals. See, God didn't name the animals, Adam did. Because Adam was to have dominion over them. That signified rule and authority. Sometimes God would change people's names. Abram, I'm going to call you Abraham. Jacob, I'm going to call you, you Israel. It's a funny thing, isn't it? You go back into civilizations and cultures, the Romans and the, and the Greeks, they named their gods. Hercules, right? Uh, Athena, Apollo, Zeus. The Canaanites named their god Baal. By the way, shouldn't that tell them something when you're actually naming your own god? But see, folks, you don't, you don't name the God of the universe. You don't name Him. That's none of your business. He names Himself. See, He told, Mo, he told Moses in Exodus 3, when, he, when He's telling Moses, you need to go back and get my, set my people free. Go back to Egypt. And, and Moses says, well, who do I tell Him sent me? And this is what God said. Tell Him, I am who I am. <laughs> what a name, Right? What a, how did, man, nobody can make that stuff up, right? A man doesn't make that up. That's God. That's Holy Spirit right there. I am who I am. That's who I am. I just love that. And so that's what he's saying. He said, not only am I going to show you physically something about who I am, but I'm going to declare my name to you. I am who I am. But then there's a third one. And this is what God does. Now, this is really interesting to me because God could have said, I'm a creator, Right? I, I'm, a, I'm a creator. I create things. And that would have been obviously true, but he didn't say that. This is what he said. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, or I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Now listen. Remember Moses' question to God. Show me your glory. Show me what it is that makes you God. And this is what God said. I choose. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. See, what does it mean to be God? It means He's completely free. See, the fact is, nobody in here is free. We are constrained every single day. We're constrained by our legal system. We're constrained by our morals. We're constrained by the Word of God. We're constrained... In all kind, we're constrained because we owe money to the bank. We're constrained in all kind of ways. We're not free, but God is completely free. He's not constrained or compelled or controlled by anything outside of Him. He chooses, He makes decisions completely from out of His own nature. And that freedom to choose is expressed in His mercy. His mercy is not caused or controlled, or constrained, or compelled by anything outside of himself. His actions are all based on his own will. That's what it means to be God. Paul says this in Romans 9, 16, the next verse. So then, he says, by the way, he just quoted, God said, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And then he gives his commentary. So then, what I mean by that is it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. You see, that's what it means to be God, to make choices unconstrained by human will or human effort. He's not, he's not constrained by that. 
So, so I don't have to tell you, hey, folks, guess what? If you work hard enough, God will show you mercy. God's not constrained by that. If you just put enough effort into it, God will show you mercy. No, it's not how it works. It's not human will. It's not human effort. It's just God who has mercy. Once again, this is his glory. This is what it means to be God, to be able to make choices unconstrained by anything outside of yourself. So this is what we're seeing. Paul has kind of opened this box, if you will, that God is choosing. And now what he's shown us is that God's choosing shows his glory. It's what it means to be God. Now, listen, we know God can do this, right? You remember last week I quoted Dr. Rick Flanders, who was trying to tell us that this, this chapter is all about nations. You remember what he said? He said, he's God. He can do anything he wants to do. And he's right. Psalms 115 puts it this way. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. See, we know God can choose. The question is, why does he choose? Why does he choose some to show mercy and not others? That's what I want to, to know. Now, here's my question before we go any further. <laughs> do you really want to know? Are you sure you want to know? You see, this chapter's got answers. In fact, by the way, we've already seen one answer in Romans 9, 11, and 12. When Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, before they were born and, and before they had done anything good or bad, and then Paul tells us why, in order that God's purpose of election might stand. Now, what does that mean? God's purpose of choosing. What, what does that mean? Well, I think Paul tells us, it doesn't tell us there, but he tells us pretty clearly to me in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, what God is doing. Listen to this passage. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And here's why. To the praise of His glorious grace. Why does God do it in a way that takes man out of the equation? So that His grace gets all the praise. His grace gets all the glory. So this is what we're seeing here. God is choosing and this choosing, is, it, it, it's, it shows that's who He is. He's God. And sometimes He expresses that choice in mercy. Why? Because it brings praise to His glorious grace. Now, there are other reasons in this chapter. But I'm going to tell you right up front, these reasons are going to take us farther than we probably want to go. Okay? In fact, that is exactly what Paul is about to do. <laughs> you know, I want to just say, Stop, Paul. Don't say nothing else. You've made your case. Just shut it down. But as I said before, I didn't write this. Paul is the one writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's the one writing Scripture, not me. So this is what he says, verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And he's quoting Exodus 9.16. Now, my first question is, how did Yul Brenner get into this uh, 
get into this scripture. And by the way, if you don't get that, go home, young people, and Google, uh, Google Yule Brenner. Um, it comes, it's a movie reference from a long time ago. Anyway, the question is, how did, uh, how did Pharaoh get into this? Um, in the early part of the passage, Paul is focusing on God's mercy, right? That, that God expresses his freedom in choosing some to have mercy on. But that's only one side of the coin. The next verse is going to give us both sides of the coin. Romans 9, 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. Okay? Now, we got to talk about that, right? We got, what does that mean, that God hardens people? Now, before we talk about that, I need to answer one other question. I, I've seen people sometimes come to Romans 9, and you read that verse, and I've heard people say, well, I see what it says, but that's only taught in Romans 9. That's not taught anywhere else in, in Scripture. And, and we should never build a doctrine out of one Scripture. And by the way, I 100% agree. If, if, if somebody ever just pulls out one Scripture and tries to build a doctrine, and they can't support that with other Scriptures... You shouldn't do that. So I, I, I completely agree you shouldn't build doctrine on one scripture. But this isn't the only place this is taught in the Bible. I'll give you a couple examples. Isaiah 44, 18 says this, They know not, nor do they discern. For God has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. By the way, Another passage you really ought to go read, which is a really cool chapter, is Isaiah 44. If you go read this chapter, this is what God says. There's these guys, or this man, and he goes out in the woods and he plants a tree, like a cedar tree, right? And the cedar tree grows and, and, and comes from a little seed and makes this big, tall tree. And one day he goes out and he cuts it down. And he takes it back and the carpenter comes... And the carpenter uh, begins to take a compass and a rule and he begins to draw out a figure on the wood. And then he takes tools that were made by a blacksmith and he cuts out that figure from that, from that tree or from that piece of wood. And he takes the wood that was left over and he builds himself a fire and he cooks bread on it to, to feed himself. And then he falls down on his face and he worships the figure that he cut out of the tree. And the Bible says in Isaiah 44, how stupid is that? Do you know how stupid that is? The same wood that you burned in the fire, the same wood that you used to bake bread, is the same piece of wood you're bowing down to. How do they not see that that is ridiculous? They can't see, for God has shut their eyes. And they can't understand because God has shut their hearts. That's what, he, that's, that's, that's what that passage means. Isaiah 63, 17. Oh, Lord, why do you make us wonder from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Mark 4, 11 to 12. You know, coming up, I, I was in church all the time. I heard parables all the time. And I don't know if I was taught this or I just inferred this. But I always thought that God, Jesus used parables to make understanding truth easier. 
And then one day I ran across this and realized that's not what's going on at all. If you go read Mark chapter 4, Jesus is telling the parable of the sower, right? And nobody gets it. Nobody understands the parable, not even the disciples. And so later when everybody's left, they, they pull him aside and they said, tell us about the parable. And these are the words of Jesus. He says, to you, talking to the disciples, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Why? So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may in indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. John chapter 12 says this, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. For Isaiah said, he, talking about God, excuse me, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. So, so what I want you to see tonight before we go any further is you can't blame this just on Paul. And you can't assign it and say, well, that's just Romans 9. No, it's in Exodus. It's in Isaiah. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can't just say, well, that's just Romans 9. No, this is, this is all over the Bible. So, God hardens. What does that mean? Now, Paul brings this up and he quotes Exodus um, 9, 16. Now, I'm going to read just a small passage of this story. If you want to read it when you go home... Start about Exodus chapter 4, and it goes all the way to Exodus 14. I'm going to read just a part of this. This is the sixth plague. It says this, So they took suit from the kiln, and they stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air. And it became bulls breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the bulls, for they came upon the magicians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. And here's where Paul quotes, But for this purpose I have raised you up. To show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In this story, starting in chapter 4 and going to about uh, chapter 14. Three times we are told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. For example, chapter 8 verse 15. When Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and he would not listen as the Lord had said. Three times we are uh, we're told, or God declares, that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. For example, all the way at the very beginning in chapter 4, by the way, just to point this out, this is before Pharaoh has even heard of Moses. Moses is still in the land of Midian. He hasn't gone back to Egypt yet, and this is what God said to him. He says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Six times in the story, God actually hardens Pharaoh's heart. For example, Exodus 9, 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. 
Seven times, that's a total of 19 times, seven times the hardening is passive. And what I mean by that is it doesn't tell us who did it. For example, Exodus 7.13, it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't say that God did it. It doesn't say that Pharaoh did it. It just was hardened. So 19 times, seven times it's passive. Three times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Uh, the other nine times it tell us that it says that God either hardened his heart or told Moses, I will harden his heart. So, which is it? Did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, the answer, of course, is what? It's both. It tells us both. That's not really the question that we want to know. Here's what you want to know. Which came first? That's the question you want to know, right? Which came first? Now, some commentators will put the blame squarely on Pharaoh's shoulders. And they'll do it in different ways. Let me give you an example. This is a guy by the name of John Stott. John Stott is a very well-known uh, theologian. He said this, Neither here nor anywhere else, he's talking about the Bible, is God said to harden anyone who has not first hardened himself. That Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and refused to humble himself is made plain in the story. So God's hardening of him was a judicial act, abandoning him to his own stubbornness. So John Stott says that Pharaoh hardened his heart first, and God said, okay, well, if you're going to harden your heart, I'm just going to harden it even harder. Everybody with me? Now, folks, listen to me. That may be true. And that may be completely false. You can actually believe that if you want to. But I'm here to tell you that is not found anywhere in Scripture. You will find nowhere in Scripture that the reason God hardened Pharaoh's heart is because Pharaoh hardened his heart first. Again, you can believe it. That's up to you. But I'm just telling you, you're not going to find that in, in Scripture. Here's another one. Dr. Norman Giesler, in his book, When Critics Ask, in 1992, he had a different reason. He said, God in his omniscience foreknew exactly how Pharaoh would respond. And he used it to accomplish his purposes. So his explanation is God knew what Pharaoh was going to do. So God went ahead and hardened his heart first. Everybody with me? Okay. Once again, that may be right, or that may be completely wrong. I have no idea. Um, all I know is it does not say that in Scripture. Nowhere. You cannot find that anywhere in Scripture, that the reason he hardened Pharaoh's heart is because he knew what Pharaoh was going to do. I first taught this, less, I first taught this lesson in 2012. And this week, I went back and I pulled out my notes and I, I had written this down. This is what I wrote down. I said, the temptation to sugarcoat what the Scripture says is sometimes overwhelming. As a teacher, the, the temptation for me to sugarcoat it for you is sometimes almost overwhelming for me. I, I look at something on the page and I read it and I say... I can't tell them that. They don't want to hear that. They're not going to like that. And the temptation is to sugarcoat it, to make God look good, to put God in my little box. See, I've got a box that says this is right and wrong. And if God don't fit in that box, 
I want my God to fit in my box. And I don't like it at all when I read things in Scripture that's not in my box. And so I, I, I want to sugarcoat it, but I can't. I just cannot sugarcoat it. Guys, I have to stand before God one day, and I'm not going to make things up. I'm sorry. Just cannot make it up out of thin air. I can only tell you what the Scripture says. And here's the truth. Neither of those viewpoints are found in Exodus, and neither one of those are found in Romans. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it ever teach that God hardens because of something a man does or something a man or woman might do. This is all the Bible says. This is it. This is Paul's statement. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. By the way, notice who he's having mercy and hardening, whomever. That's not a nation. That's not an entity. It's not a country. It's a person. He hardens whomever he wills, and he has mercy on whomever he wills. See, this is why Paul brings Pharaoh into the conversation. Because it shows us as God, not only is he choosing to express his freedom sometime by showing mercy, sometimes he's choosing to express his freedom by hardening. That's what it means to be God. And his purpose in both cases is exactly the same, to glorify himself. Did you notice what, what Romans 9, 17 said when Paul quoted it? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very uh, purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And 2,000 years later, Charlton Heston is making a movie about Moses. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? 2,000 years later, God's name is still being proclaimed. His, his, his miracles and what he did are still being proclaimed. And he said, that's why I raised you up. That's why I hardened your heart. So that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So this is what we're seeing. Paul has opened up this idea that God is choosing. And God's choosing shows His glory. Sometimes it shows it, He shows it through mercy, which brings glory to His amazing grace. But sometimes He hardens, but it's still, when He does that, it brings glory in some way to His name. Now, we're almost to the end. How do we know that we're on the right track? I ask myself that all the time. How do you know there's not another explanation for this? How do you know, Derek, that you're interpreting this correctly? Here's how. Look at the next verse, Romans 9, 19. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault with me? Who can resist his will? Now, how do I know I'm right? Because that's exactly what I think. If you're telling me that God chooses to have mercy sometimes and God hardens sometimes, I want to say to God, well, then why, why, you, got a, why you got a problem with me? How can I resist your will? Yes? That's exactly the question we should be asking. And that's exactly the question that Paul is, is, is answering here for his objector. Now, listen, if I was on the wrong track here, that God is really choosing people sometime to have mercy. And He's really choosing people sometime to harden. If we're on the wrong track, it would have been so easy for Paul to deal with it right here. 
This is the point, Paul. Deal with it right here. Paul could have said, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I didn't really mean that God hardens people. I meant, I meant he hardens people who first harden themselves. He could have said that. He could have said, no, you don't understand. Uh, God hardened Pharaoh because he foreknew what Pharaoh would do. He could have said that. He could have said, no, you don't understand. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about nations. But he didn't say that either. This, this is what he said. Verse 20. Indeed, O man, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who are you to reply against God? Who are you to take God and think you can put Him in a box that you think that you've assigned right and wrong? Who are you? Will the thing formed say to Him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor? And another for dishonor. That's the end of the teaching. And I got no idea how to close this out. I got no clue. I, I was thinking about this this afternoon. At this point in Romans 9.20, God is incredibly awesome. <laughs> He's sitting there. There ain't nobody making him do nothing. He ain't beholden to nobody. He does when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, where he wants to do it, and why he wants to do it. He is up there, and we've just been compared to a lump of clay. We are down here. You know, let me make this clear. The teaching is over. I'm now just commenting. Everybody with me? You can take what I'm about to say and you throw it away. You deal with that. The teaching is over. I'm afraid that we live in a generation where we have elevated man higher and higher and higher as though God owes us something. In our songs, in our, in, in, in our books, in our movies, and in, in everything else we produce, it's just we, mankind just keeps getting higher and higher. See, I'm, a, I'm, I'm of a mind, I'm sure, I think the old hymns had it closer to being right. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Alas, and did my Savior, well, how does that go? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Should he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I... By the way, I went out and looked up the lyrics of that song today, and the first time I read it, it said, for such a sinner as I... And I thought, wait a minute. I don't remember that. Do you know they changed it? Isaac Watts wrote that, and he said, for such a worm as I. And, and we thought, oh, we can't say that. That, that don't bring people in. <laughs> Let's just change it to center. And see, I'm afraid that worms and wretch and clay. Are you with me? Listen. How do I close this out? I want to spend a little time at the altar. <laughs> and I, I, again, this is a hard one, right? I mean, Pastor Henry should probably be way better at this than I do. Here, here's how I want to close this out. I'm going to ask you for just a few minutes to come and spend a few moments at the altar. And this is what I want to encourage you to do. You serve an awesome, great, majestic, 
sovereign God. I, I can't come up with enough accolades to describe him, the, the one that you serve. And as I said last week, if you are a child of God, he has shown mercy to you. He showed mercy to you. But here's the other thing. I, I can't imagine here tonight that there's not somebody that needs something from this great and awesome and majestic God. That there's somebody in your life that doesn't know him. That, that, that I think it was James says, you don't have because you don't ask. Can we please understand what a God this is that we serve? He is beholden to nobody. He can do anything that he wants to do. Ask him. If you've got a brother or sister or mother or father or, or child or uncle or aunt that needs to know Jesus Christ, ask him. He shows mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. How do I not know that before time began that he's, already, he's just waiting for you to ask? How do you not know that? Can you imagine... He's waiting for the moment to allow you to participate in that person's salvation through prayer. He's just waiting. He is an awesome God. He can do anything he wants to do. Will you save this one? Will you save that one? God, God, will you, don't let me go to heaven without my mom. Don't let me go to heaven without my brother. Don't let me go to heaven. Ask him, do you need something here tonight? You serve an incredible Incredible God. I don't understand. Can I be honest with you? I just taught that. And there's a lot of it I don't understand. See, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this. If anybody can say they understand that, it's because their knowledge is so shallow, they got no problem getting to the bottom of it. That's what Charles Spurgeon says. These are deep, deep, deep things of God. I, I was reminded this morning... As I was reading this, I was reminded one more story, and then I promise I'll shut up. In the book of John, maybe chapter 9, I don't believe, or I, I, I can't remember. You remember the story of the guy that was blind from birth? And Jesus is walking by, and he sees him, and he makes mud and puts it on his eyes. And the man goes and washes, and he comes back, and he's healed, and he goes in the temple. And everybody's like, man, is that that, is that, that blind guy? And some of them said, I think that's him. And they said, no, he, he don't look the same. And, and so the Pharisees hear about it, and they come in, man, and they start asking him, who did this? And he said, that Jesus guy. And, and they said, well, well, well he, he did that on the Sabbath. He's a sinner. And they kept trying to tell him, call him a sinner. And, 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 I, and he said, and he just, they kept after him. He went to his parents, and they asked his parents, and his parents were scared to death. Because they already been heard that anybody that confessed Jesus as the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And they said, well, he, he's a grown man. Go ask him. And so they went back to the guy again. And they kept asking him, call him a sinner. This man's a sinner. And this is what he said. What a statement that he made. And I know you know what it is. He said, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But this one thing I know, I was blind. But now I see. I don't understand how this can be. One thing I know, I was blind. But now I see. I was lost and now I'm found. I was, I was under the wrath of God, and now I've been shown mercy. Don't you want that for other people? 
Don't you want that for somebody in your life? Let's close. Let's, let's come to the altar, if you will. If you, if you can't come to the altar, you're not comfortable, uh, just stay where you are. Let's spend a few moments. Think about someone in your life that you know needs to be shown mercy by the living God. And ask God if He will do that. Thank you again for joining us today at River of Life. If this teaching has touched you today, or if you need somebody to pray with you, please let us know. You can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email to info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Visit rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions. Music